For our call to worship this morning, I will be reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 94, and verses 1 through 15. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the works of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chasteneth the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knoweth teacheth man's knowledge, shall not he know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off the people, neither will he forsake his heritage, is his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. The Old Testament reading today is found in Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And if you're using your Pew Bible, it is found on page 224. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Egalon, king of Moab, power over Israel getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join them, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possessions of the city of Psalms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. I will be reading from the New Testament, Hebrews 10, 10 through 25, and that's on the page of 1113 of your pew Bible. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them 
After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The book of Judges is perhaps not as familiar to many of us, myself included, as it might be. It is a record of that period of time between Joshua's conquests and the establishment of a kingdom in Israel. It's known as the period of the judges. There are historical and archaeological evidences that place this in a period of time uh, that, that fits. The book itself is challenging to date, according to scholars. And yet it's a wonderful collection of reminders and stories. Some of them very unfamiliar, very graphic, some of them rather familiar. And hopefully, as we continue to explore an overview of scripture, these stories will find their places as well. I want to give you the overview before I get to the specifics because the stories themselves are interesting and they are important, but unless you're going to uh, do some kind of degree in uh, ancient Canaanite and other cities uh, in Israel, you probably won't ever find the geography or the names uh, memorizable or meaningful per se as we go through these. But it is important to note that under Joshua and Caleb, the Israelites have crossed the Jordan from the Moabite side. The largest tribes have been given inheritance nearest the Jordan. And a lot of the work of the campaign of central, what would be called central Israel, has been undertaken by Joshua. But the campaign is by no means complete. And what we find, in fact, is that Israel gets complacent, uh, lazy, the battles are too difficult, something happens, it's not explicitly stated. But they don't fulfill the command of the Lord, tribe by tribe by tribe by tribe by tribe, to take the land and inherit it. 
And Canaanite and other cities are allowed to continue in existence and the people living there continuing to live there. And what we find is it's not long at all before Israel forgets their God. I want to bring this home really quickly. I forget my God very quickly. So this passage has particular meaning for me today. Both of them. I believe most of us, if not all of us, forget our God very quickly. I tend to have a human approach, an attitude that's rather utilitarian and American in its format. And it goes something like this. It's so wonderful, God, that you could part the Red Sea and help Israel over the River Jordan. What have you done for me lately? It's so wonderful, Lord, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, could I just please have a steak? Do you not pray these prayers? Think these thoughts? God has done amazing things in Joshua's time. Joshua has seen deliverance from Egypt. He's seen all the plagues. He's seen them walk out of Egypt with all of these gifts and all of this gold and silver and precious stones. He's seen slaves walk away with the wealth of Egypt. He's seen them go into a desert where there was really no way to survive and the Lord provided day after day water and manna. He's been up on the mountain with Moses when the Ten Commandments have been given and seen the horrible debacle that followed in the initial giving when Moses comes off the mountain filled with the radiance of God and already Israel has decided Moses has long died on the mountain and they have moved on to the worship of gods they used to know in Egypt. What a shock and disappointment. Joshua was there when they finally got to the edge of, Mo, uh, of the promised land, he would have been one who watched Moses ascend to the mountain to die. And he was one who received the mantle, so to speak. He organized the crossing of the River Jordan, and once again, God acted in a miraculous way, parting the waters. God's presence was clear to Joshua. And like Moses, God spoke to Joshua. Israel was privileged in a way that they had never could have anticipated or understood. And as they get to the promised land, they have to make decisions even then, as you recall. As they're, as they're crossing into this land, they have to make the decision. Are they going to go with the gods that surround them or are they going to stay true to the one true God, the God of Israel? Joshua makes that famous speech as for me and my house we will serve the Lord and all of Israel agrees. We get to see the process of covenant 
in action over and over again. God is perpetually faithful. Perpetually. Always faithful. And the people always forget. The people are perpetually unfaithful. And covenant is renewed and fulfilled over and over again. And as Joshua is ready to pass his lifetime of love for these people, just like Moses, his lifetime of service to the Lord and to the people of Israel, just like his predecessor Moses, his military brilliance, his youthful vigor, his willingness to implement the plan of the Lord given to Moses that a land might be inherited, taken, a promise fulfilled. All of this forgotten within a generation. It's remarkable, isn't it? Don't you think if your grandfather had told you that he had crossed Lake Michigan on dry land because of the work of the Lord, that you might remember that story somehow? Don't you think if your, if your father had told you that when he was a little boy, he used to hear stories of the bread that fell from heaven? I, I, I don't know. But I do know. You see, if we do our work with our children, we tell them of the ways God has led us and our parents and their parents before them. And many times these stories don't make it. We know the story about the flat tire and the Model T. We know the story about the shotgun at the lake. We know the story about how ornery great Aunt Hilda was. And of her 14 boys, 12 of whom ended up in prison. We don't tell that one very often, do we? Uh, you, you know the, the stories of your family's past, how many of them have to do with the way God led and provided. God was with our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents, brought them through terrible times, war and depression, spared their lives in countless ways and we've forgotten the stories and we've turned to our own way and we've asked our own questions anew is there really a God? am I really on track? is it really possible to know anything about his will or his way? am I really obligated to these old-fashioned notions of law and judgment and so forth. So now let's open the text. I will not be reading at length. I want to tell you two stories from the text and I'll be reading little segments. Um, but I just want you to get a feel for these chapters in Joshua. And it is so much fun for me because I have a brand new Bible that is a TNIV, just like your pew Bibles. And it is a, a study Bible, just like my NIV Bibles were. And the really fun part for all of you is going to be how small the print is in this thing. <laughs> I may have to uh, <laughs> print.
pursue other, other means of, of, of reading to you. We find in chapter 1 that the Lord is commanding Joshua. He has not yet passed. This is the story of his passing. And the first chapter, first five chapters, speak of entrance into the land of promise, the exhortations to conquer, um, and the reconnaissance. Oh, we're in Judges. I'm sorry, I'm in Joshua. Wrong place, wrong place. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sometimes my brain works well, sometimes not as well. One, three, is the conquest and apostasy. That fits much better. The first two chapters deal with Israel's failure to purge the land of remaining Canaanites, Hivites, Azurites, etc., etc., etc. And you get a feeling from this. Joshua has died, and the question is asked, who, is, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about how the battle was the Lord's. The battle is always the Lord's. And he says, I will give the land into their hands. So the men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us to the territory allotted to us and fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you to yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Why, I have no idea. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So there's your answer. This king had treated others this badly, cutting off their thumbs and toes, and now he dies from the same. Could have been infection, could have been bleeding, shock, I don't know. When we read on, we find these stories repeating themselves. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and took it and set it to fire, only we find that they didn't really occupy Jerusalem because later it's occupied again by Canaanites and David has to take the city at a later time. We find a young man named Othniel who's willing to fight in order to marry Caleb's daughter. And he goes after kiriath Sefer and takes the city. These little things that we're not going to remember, these things that are interesting to scholars, things that would be interesting if you really wanted to do a detailed study of the, of the book of Judges. And then we find ourselves in chapter 2. Basically, again, just to repeat, chapters 1 and most of chapters 2 are about Israel's failure to take the whole of the land. They did not complete it or finish it. So, for example, in 127 we find, But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Ta'anak or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo. And their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. This is the story, tribe after tribe, region after region. And it sets Israel up for very difficult times. What happens when we forget the word of the Lord? When we fail to fulfill his, his calling in our life, it sets us up for some difficult times. There's an old saying, father knows best or mothers know best. Truth is, the Lord knows best. 
Isn't it? The Lord knows best. And when we fail, there are natural consequences. There are imposed sometimes consequences. The angel of the Lord at Bochim, chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land. I swore I would give you to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of the land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110. After that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor the work he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord their God of the ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtarists. In his anger against that. Israel, The Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them, who sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to these, their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their ancestors, they quickly turned from following the way of their ancestors, the way of obedience the Lord commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies for as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groanings under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people turned to ways even more corrupt than their ancestors, following other gods and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So we have two stories. The story of a judge named Ehud in chapter 3. Again, the Israelites in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil the Lord gave them, gave King Eglon, king of Moab, power over them. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of the Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. And we read this section of the story. What Ehud did this left-handed man, was strap a sword to the inside of his thigh underneath of his cloak. He took the tribute Israel was to pay King Eglon, and he took it himself to the court. And when he had gotten into the court and done his obeisance to the king and provided the tribute that was required, for Israel was oppressed, 
He spoke to the king a message of deceit. He has a, says, I have a private word for you from my territory. And the king dismissed his courtiers. This left-handed man, how many of you are left-handed? All right. How many of you left-handed people know that you, oh, never mind, we're not going to get into your, your perceived or real superiorities. Um, what? Left-handed people tend to be a little higher IQ on average than right-handed people and live a little longer than right-handed people. Did you know that? And they're less than 5% of the population. Pretty interesting. And it, the word for left-handedness is sinistrality. And we use the word sinister from sinistrality. During the Middle Ages, left-handed people were burned as witches at the stake. They didn't live longer back in those days. <laughs> this left-handed man, very clever, reached in his cloak and quickly took his sword and plunged it into the belly of King Eglon, who was very fat. He was so fat in point of fact that the sword went through the fat, into the, through the abdominal wall, into the entrails. The entrails burst out of him, and the sword and hilt of the sword were swallowed up in the fat. The Bible gives you this kind of detail. In case you were wondering, the Bible is not a... G book or a PG-13 book. It's, uh, it goes other directions. Ehud did not remove his sword. He silenced the king until he was not going to be able to scream out. Dashed out the side of the palace and through the courtyards and past the guards, having shut up the palace... All of his courtiers assumed that he was, and the Bible says this too, I'm not making it up, relieving himself. And they waited on him to the point of embarrassment, the scriptures say, until they finally went in to find him eviscerated. Ehud went to the mountains and called for the men of Israel who had been waiting to launch the attack. While everybody was busy worrying about King Eglon, the Lord gave Eglon and his city to the Israelites and 10,000 men died that day. And there was peace for a period of time. Then the story that Debbie told today of Deborah comes into play. What a marvelous redaction of that story, by the way. When we get to the part she didn't tell, yes, she summoned Barak, yes, she went with Barak, to the front line but she told Barak the price of her going with him was that he would not receive the honor as having delivered Israel it would go to a woman she went to battle with Barak and with the people that they engaged and won the battle soundly but the king fled or one of the generals named Sisera fled actually and went to a place where he had a treaty with someone living in the area I don't know how word traveled but the person with whom he had had a treaty invited him into the tent. Her name was Jael. Would have named my daughter that if I'd had one. Her husband, and she was uh, a prophetess, priestess type thing, her husband was uh, uh, in cahoots with her apparently, and she brought Sisera into the tent, gave him milk, 
put a blanket around him, comforted him, and drove a tent peg through his skull. And with those, when those pursuing Sisera caught up to them, she was proud to show them his final resting place and what she had done with the tent peg. Never underestimate a woman named Jail, men. Never. I married a Jill. I have to be careful. That's close enough. So why do I tell these stories? I tell these stories because as I read these stories in Scripture, it says, for example, in chapter 4, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Multiple times in these first five chapters, I find these words. Chapter 3, verse 12, again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How prone we are to wander. How prone we are to forget. How quickly we go back to our own vomit, to use the illustration of dogs going back to their own vomit and eat it again. How quickly we reject the goodness of God for poor substitutes. We eschew the comfort of the Spirit for poor comforts and substitutes. How quickly we remember our sins and return to them and how quickly we forget the graces, the leadings and the mercies of our God. We're just like Israel. And our passage in Hebrews reminds us that we're not engaged in the same cycle of captivity and loss and a judge arising who leads us back out only to plunge deeper. The passage in Hebrews reminds us that we no longer have to gather Israel, read the law, and do sacrifices passage in Hebrews reminds us that there has been a sacrifice made once for all. That it's not there for us to abuse or take lightly. Grace doesn't abound that we might sin all the more. It's there because God knows we will constantly need it. It's there because it will be our story to wander and return. But I hope that as we listen to the story of Israel and the judges and the way God raised up people to remind them of covenant, the way in which he promises in Hebrews to write that covenant on the fleshy tables of our hearts, he will be our God and we will be his people. And the battle will be the Lord's. These stories, obscure as they may be, are about God's faithfulness to his covenant. His faithfulness to a people that's not faithful. His promise to you. His promise to me. These passages are about the goodness of a God who will drive out our enemies from a land 
and give us an inheritance. Let's try not to forget lessons as quickly as Israel did. And if we do, let's be quick to rise up and return to the love of the Lord our God. And so, Lord, go with us as we go forth with you. Amen.